and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 102, His Cup Runneth Over. The Great War was over. Now it was time for politics, yet they would be anything but usual. The soldiers of the Kaiser may have held their own on land against the Tommies and the Poilu, but it was the British Royal Navy that had starved and weakened the aggressors with a blockade of the North Sea. And now it was time for the senior service to remind the people and the world of its might. On November 21st, 1918, just 10 days after the armistice was signed, the light cruiser HMS Cardiff cleared Scottish waters and met up with a German high seas fleet made up of 179 vessels, battleships, cruisers, destroyers, submarines, and other such craft. Then, turning around, the Cardiff led the massive fleet to May Island in the mouth of the Firth of Forth. Waiting there was Admiral Sir David Beatty and Britain's fleet, some 370 warships that had formed into two separate lines, waiting for their guests. The German ships maneuvered into position as expected and lowered their anchors, which was followed by the German flag. Meanwhile, in France, where the majority of the fighting took place, the land was utterly destroyed. To the east, the Austro-Hungarian dual monarchy was imploding. Even further east, Tsarist Russia ceased to be. Germany, as the Kaiser had known it, also ceased to be. It was now replaced by instability, mutual accusations, followed by assassinations. Which left Great Britain. True, the flower of the latest generation was gone, but as a country, their position was envied. Britain may have owed the Americans some $5 billion, but the money it was owed was by far superior. The island nation had also gained just under 1 million square miles of new land that held 13 million people. Now within the British Empire was the German New Guinea, Southwest Africa, Tanganyika, some of Togoland, and Cameroon. Also, hundreds of formerly German-controlled islands. But if there is pride in victory, then there is certainly defiance in humiliation. And so thus humiliated, the German Navy acted defiantly. Seven months after sailing into the Firth of Forth, German Admiral von Reuter quietly ordered all the Seacocks of his ten battleships, nine armored cruisers, eight large cruisers, 50 torpedo boats, and 102 submarines be removed at the same time. All those British naval personnel and civilians who just happened to be there at that moment were to witness this mass of naval might disappear beneath the waves. The message to London was clear. Defeated, perhaps. Beaten, never. And there would come another day. This act of defiance angered the British people, and they expected Lloyd George to stick it to them in the upcoming negotiations. And by the Prime Minister's side was Winston. But had the people known of his thoughts at the time, they would have wished him anywhere else. He looked upon the defeated and desperate Germany with compassion. His desire to assist came to the fore. Most of those around him felt the exact opposite.
Besides this difference of how post-war Germany should be treated, Winston was mostly unchanged by the European-wide confrontation. He was still driven, yet the seemingly endless war and immense casualties had smoothed over some of his edges. According to one observer, Winston was described thus, quote, Much of the early eagerness has been softened by age and experience. In manner, he remains alert, thrusting, eager, or, in sharp contrast, fitting his mood, somber, portentous, and scowling, with laden responsibility. His dedication to his career is total, even obsessive. Experience has not dimmed the originality of his mind, nor the intensity of his emotions, nor the volubility of his conversation. Unquote. As the talks at Versailles got underway, the distance between Churchill and Lloyd George increased. He found he had little effect on LG's lukewarm support for U.S. President Wilson's idea for a League of Nations. But in LG's defense, his attitude lay in the simple fact that Woodrow Wilson's proposal of self-determination contained the ingredients for the end of the British Empire. It also displeased Churchill that he could not blunt the edge of Clemenceau's hostility towards the Germans. Understandable, yes, but also unfortunate, as the shackles of Versailles would one day fuel Hitler's rise to power. Another post-war indication of the new prevailing wind that blew over the waves was the naval accord that specified the United States and Britain would have the same number of warships, which was almost unthinkable before the war. Japan would have the next largest, followed in third by France. But why would Great Britain agree to this, to give up the one thing that determined its majesty over the planet's waterways, to rid itself of 657 of its ships, which included battleships, cruisers, and dreadnoughts? Because, quite simply, after spending five million pounds a day for the duration of the war, the country financially had no choice. This necessary measure flew in the face of those that cheered back to 1914. So, too, did these social changes sweeping the island nation. The young didn't feel the pride in the empire their parents did, nor did they share that peculiar English belief that a certain segment of society was automatically their betters and should be deferred to. Churchill witnessed these changes, lived through them, and reacted to them like any thinking man who had one foot in the 19th century while the other was equally placed in the 20th. Soon after the war, Winston wrote, quote, What a disappointment the 20th century has been. How terrible and how melancholy is long series of disastrous events what have darkened its first 20 years. We have seen in every country a disillusion, a weakening of the bonds, a challenge to those principles, a decay of faith, an abridgment of hope of what structure and ultimate existence of civilized society depends. Can you doubt, my faithful friends, as you survey this somber panorama, that mankind is passing through a period marked not only by an enormous destruction and abridgment of human species, not only by vast impoverishment and reduction in means of existence, but also that destructive tendencies have not yet run their course." Unquote. Yet, despite this prophesied future, 
Winston, still ever the optimist, never doubted that Britain would rebound into a position of prominence, nor that its people, though currently shaken, would find their footing in this new age. As for himself, he would soldier on. It was all he knew. So, assured of his future, Winston the politician kept one eye out for himself, while the other looked out for the people. And because he was what he was, his public speeches mostly mirrored what he wrote in private. Winston was not a two-faced Janus. As Lloyd George called for another election, Winston remained true to his convictions and said, for all to hear, that Germany should be fed and clothed, and that Britain should not get too heady with thoughts that could turn reprisals into revenge. Moreover, he told the people of Dundee, as their representative, the same thing, whether they wanted to hear it or not. Not surprisingly, they were focused on the 30,000 soldiers that came from their streets, and the 20% of them now dead. But Winston was saved from himself, as the times were bigger than the man. With euphoria reigning as the war was now over, Winston was re-elected, with a majority of just over 15,000 votes. And as Winston had played a major role in supporting Lloyd George, it seemed only proper that he be ready for a weightier seat. Certain members of Parliament did not want Winston anywhere near the army, and said so publicly. But Lloyd George remembered the psalm and Passchendaele, and knew these voices were not of reason. So, with some deliciousness, the Prime Minister moved Churchill into the dual positions of Secretary of State for War and Air. But Winston came into this promotion just when the body that was the armed forces was diseased and determined to turn on itself. As the war was over, the vast majority of men under arms needed to be discharged, and they themselves were eager to return to their lives. The problem was how to decide who went home first. But then the soldiers decided to make the call for themselves. They demanded that they were all to be released now. They showed their resolve by rioting and forming mobs. Of course, now that Winston was in the saddle, this was the exact opposite way to access the man's more tender feelings. So, as the Secretary for War and Air, Winston found men still loyal and had the demonstrators moved away from their place of demonstration by force and returned to their barracks. But, as tough as Winston was being, he stayed the hand of some of his generals, who either wanted to run at the mobs with bayonets fixed or have them shot. Balance was the answer, and patience. He forced the former and demanded the latter. And by January 1919, almost a million men had been returned to civilian life. And by the end of the year, Winston had reduced the military budget by 70%. And that is what people like Lloyd George expected of Churchill. Industriousness and results, with a bit of panache thrown in. But having reduced the army, Winston was more convinced than ever that Britain now needed a large standing army. Bolshevism was raging over the weakened German states. Its origin was made clear by Winston. Pointing his walking stick to the east, he exclaimed, quote, Russia, Russia, that is where this weather is coming from, unquote. 
And indeed, as the Russian Civil War between the Whites and the Reds raged, Europe was sucked in, even though its people only wanted peace. United as best they could, given their post-war exhaustion, the powers of Europe and the United States supported the White Russians, loyal to the Romanovs, with 180,000 troops. But the difference was that Winston wanted to do so much more than Lloyd George. So, the men were on different sides of the issue. Never a good place to be if one is, like Winston was, the inferior. The only ones supporting Churchill were the Tories, who applauded his speeches either before the cabinet or in the House of Commons. That's not to say that Winston wanted the Tsarist government set up again. He certainly did not. But when the Romanovs were slaughtered wholesale and the butchery spread outward, the doers of the deeds needed to be stopped. Russia now needed a social democratic regime to control the country in turmoil. And so Winston waged his war as best he could. When the ever-vacillating Lloyd George thought out loud of recognizing the Soviets, Winston threatened to resign right then and there. Then it was Winston's turn to muse out loud that perhaps Germany, even in its current state, should be built up as a bulwark against the Reds to the east, or as he put it to Violet Asquith, quote, kill the Boshi and kiss the Hun, unquote. Not unexpectedly, considering the times, this was unacceptable to almost all around him. Still, he did what he could do, even if it meant exceeding his authority, something that Winston was comfortable with doing. He shipped howitzers to the whites and asked for British citizens to join in the fray, and just over 8,000 did. Churchill got away with this, mostly because Lloyd George seemed to change his mind about the Russian struggle almost daily. One day, he backed Winston to the hilt, then returned to the idea of leaving Russia altogether, in the spirit of, Britain should look after itself and allow Russia to do the same. Not exactly would Winston, as an influential member of one of the most dominant and powerful countries, was used to. It didn't help Winston's future that some of the British citizenry found common cause with those in Russia fighting against imperialism and the status quo. As touching the Russian Civil War, the British people were walking a different path than Winston, and there was the matter of tightening the country's belt, which meant little to him. Right was right, no matter the cost, in lives or pounds. But ultimately, events in Russia conspired against Churchill. Still, he fought the good fight. One of those events was when Poland, in the form of General Józef Pilsudski, decided in early 1919 to invade Russia, which stirred the soul of all Russians, and the fighting parties came together enough to drive the land-hungry general back to Warsaw. When it was over, that decided Lloyd George, who came down hard on Winston, by declaring Poland's and Russia's fate would be decided by themselves. Britain would stay out of it. Domestically, when Churchill, the conservative, cut the military's budget, he was praised. But when he couldn't inspire the people to his side over the Russian Civil War, he was seen again as a man of madcap military adventures. It was time for a change. 
and Lloyd George and Winston heartily agreed to this. Churchill was now to be the colonial secretary. But before moving on, it's worth noting a movement that Winston backed that proved he was all too human. As the Minister of War, Winston agreed with Lloyd George and others on the idea that Great Britain would be unable to participate in another general war for another 10 years. Checking the aggression of another country or fulfilling a pledge to an allied nation is not an exercise in the abstract. Winston, with all he had been through, should have realized this, but it was a popular stance to take at the time. And as we have seen, this idea would be perpetuated until it was almost too late for the next war. But that is another story. Even with Winston changing offices and responsibilities, his strengths still shone. How could they not? By 1920, Churchill was the most powerful speaker in the House, and he used his gifts to lift some of the shame on a tragic event of April 13, 1919, when Brigadier General Reginald Dyer had his men open fire on a group of civilian Punjabis at a gathering. The natives had assembled peaceably to talk about Dyer's reaction to a supposed accusation of an Englishwoman being molested in the Punjab city of Aristar. The brigadier then made all the native men who happened along crawl on their hands and knees the length of the street where the event took place. Some of them were also whipped. As the humiliated people were discussing their shameful experiences, Dyer came upon them and had his men open fire for just under 10 minutes. And in that time, the civilians had sustained 379 dead and just over 1,500 wounded. Dyer then had his troops about face and returned to camp. There were those in London who praised the general, but for many more, common sense prevailed. Still, an event like this had to be brought before Parliament. The House of Lords went first and voted to praise the general, or at the very least, not to punish him. Then, it was the turn of the commons. As the session began on July 8, 1920, everyone knew that the House would vote against Dyer. However, another low point in British snobbery raised its ugly head and actually reversed the feelings of many, this time to support Dyer. And that happening was an attacking speech by Secretary of State for India, Edwin Montague, who happened to be a Jew. Montague had been forewarned to be judicial and, most importantly, succinct, but he was not. Soon, anti-Semitic shouts could be heard, trying to override the speaker, and what should have been a straightforward speech and vote had now become a circus. Winston was selected to speak last, and so rose amidst the storm. And bringing to bear all his charm, conviction, and good reason, Winston launched into his speech that would end up saving Britain's honor. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. 
I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. He started off by appealing to everyone's sense of decency. After all, the number of Indian dead was roughly that of all the members of the house. This caused more than a few heads to turn this way and that, as they imagined the image Winston was conveying. Then he assured his audience that Dyer was not being dismissed, but that his tour of India was over. Churchill then commented, almost casually, that Dyer's leadership in the callous event was surely monstrous. But before this observation could rekindle emotions, he asked them all to look at the event from a soldier's point of view. It was a military maxim to never use more force than necessary to beat an opponent, and the Indians killed and wounded were civilians, unarmed and not threatening, but simply airing their grievances to each other. He continued, Was this the kind of action that Britain was known for, wanted to be known for? No, of course not. The British Empire was built upon cooperation with the people of its empire. Britain led by example, not by death and murder. His personal dignitas brought to the fore, Winston carried the day. The vote to modestly approve of Dyer's action lost by a vote of 247 to 37. Churchill became the colonial secretary on February 14th, 1921, and jumped into a whole other series of political dangers and challenges with his usual vim and vigor, because, as he was always better on the offensive, he enjoyed the idea of no more budget cutting. But even for a man who enjoyed a challenge, the colonial office gave Winston a run for his money. The Middle East and the situation with Ireland needed straightening out, and Winston with his Blenheim-sized ego, believed he was just the man for the job. As touching the Middle East, Winston had to work hard with and through the Balfour Declaration of 1917 that said Britain favored the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people, while respecting the rights and religions of all non-Jewish communities in and near Palestine. So, Winston, being Winston, climbed aboard the French steamship Sphinx and made for the Middle East. Knowing this would upset the Arabs, he wisely took along his ace, the one British citizen the Middle Eastern people respected, Colonel T.E. Lawrence, the Lawrence of Arabia. He spoke Arabic fluently, led the Arabs against the Turks during the war, was captured, 
tortured, and loved all the more for it. If anyone could get the people of that region to go along with a Jewish homeland, it would be Lawrence. Also in tow were Air Marshal Sir Hugh Trenchard and Archie Sinclair, Winston's private secretary. Clementine was picked up on the way, as Winston believed he owed her a vacation, albeit a working one. While en route, if anyone asked Winston why he was going to the Middle East, he lied to their face. When he wasn't believed, he admitted that he was really here to settle several disputes, Transjordan, Iraq, and Palestine, but asked that nothing be printed until he actually had a chance to get something accomplished. And at the time, the press honored such requests. Now that the truth was unofficially out there, others wrote to him to give their opinions, what the boundaries should be for Palestine, who should rule what territories. And Winston pretended to weigh each person's words seriously, but privately kept his own counsel. This mission required surgical precision, not his normal broadsword approach, and he was wise enough to know this. Clementine may have had a hand in this. But despite his best efforts, locals against his agenda were waiting for him, with stones in their hands. As his train pulled up to Station Square in Cairo, it was met with shouts from the crowd of down with Churchill and arms that held rocks were raised. But the great Satan did not step off of the train. Winston and his party had prematurely departed and dashed to their hotel, the Semiramis. Once he was safely there and surrounded by security, Winston got down to his real job, to decide who would run Iraq and Transjordan. And on March 12, 1921, the Cairo Conference got underway, with 38 experts on the Middle East. Of course, of the 38, 36 were British. The last two were the sons of King Hussein, Amir Fazl and Amir Abdullah. The main question was, of the two, who would rule where? Leaning heavily on T.E. Lawrence, Churchill decided that Fazl, intelligent, inspiring, and having other qualities that most believed a king needed, was given Iraq. His brother Abdullah, Fazl's opposite in many ways, was given Transjordan. With Abdullah's shortcomings acknowledged, though only between themselves, Lawrence and Churchill decided that a British High Commissioner would be placed in-country to assist the weaker of the two royals. Thus, honor was satisfied, as much as it could be in this turbulent land. The newly made kings would send their sons to school in Britain, as was proper. The oil in Iraq was safe in British hands. And, most importantly, some goodwill had been generated, which would hopefully help with the next question, the Jewish homeland. Other decisions were made as well, like to withdraw British troops from Iraq and save the exchequer 25 million pounds a year, thank you very much, and the details were left to the subordinates in Mena House. With these details checked off his list, Winston took Clementine's hand, it was time for the vacation part of this trip. Although the people of Egypt still wanted to stone the man, because he had previously made reference that Egypt was still a part of the British Empire, Winston ignored them all and set about to paint the Sphinx and the pyramids, 
Of course, there was a large military escort around him at all times. But Winston didn't seem to notice, or notice the need. On the way to the pyramids, when he and Clem were riding camels, Winston kept leaning forward excitedly to see what was ahead. Then he fell off. Several others in his party rushed up and offered their horses to him, to which a chagrined Winston replied, quote, I started on a camel, and I shall finish on a camel. Unquote. Then later, it was time to move on. But considering the crowds lined up against him and what he represented, it was decided that a little more subterfuge was wanted. So at midnight on March 23rd, Winston and party climbed aboard their train and made for Gaza. Later, when the party stuck their heads out, they saw 150,000 Arabs assembled, their hands raised in the air. Winston, believing they were wishing him well, smiled and waved back. It was then that Lawrence translated what they had been shouting. Quote, down with the Jews, cut their throats, unquote. Winston stopped smiling and put down his hand. Lawrence soon found out that Abdullah, the supposed weaker brother, was making his anti-Jewish feelings known, and the people heartily supported him. Lawrence apologized to the colonial secretary for his mistake. Winston, being the type of man who appreciated mistakes when they were made sincerely, stiffened his back to the bold face threats he saw every day against the Jews. His feelings were now stirred, and his heart quickened at the idea of establishing a homeland for the Jews. He supported the Balfour Declaration whenever and wherever he could in public. And the House of Commons, moved by his passion and by his speeches, supported him with a vote of 292 to 35 to make the Balfour Declaration a reality. Of course, it would still take a quarter of a century with one British commission after another re-reviewing the facts in 1929, in 1938, in 1939, and then everything was put on hold as the Allies needed the Turks to fight the Axis. Afterward, the commissions started up again, but it didn't help that the following colonial secretaries didn't share Winston's courage, but the stage had been set. Of course, any peace in the East went part and parcel with the UK having a stable relationship with Turkey. But that Britain didn't have, mostly due to Lloyd George, who favored Greece instead and refused to speak with Turkey's leader, Kemal Ataturk, the Great Turk, the same man who was then General Kemal, who won over Allied forces at Gallipoli. He was the dictator now and determined to raise Turkey back to its preeminence in the region. After the war, the Bosphorus and Dardanelles were internationalized, and the surrounding areas demilitarized. However, these Kamel vowed he would have back, which caused tension with Greece, and LG supported Greece against Turkey. But it was a support without troops, which Britain could not afford at the time. Then the Greek government fell, and Kamel used the ensuing confusion to strengthen his hold over his own territory. Then, so emboldened, in the summer of 1921, Turkish forces pushed back the attacking Greeks and took Smyrna, a port city along Turkey's west coast. But, after annihilating literally every non-Turk person found, 
It soon became clear to the Europeans that Kamel's objective was to close the Dardanelles. Upon realizing this, the French and Italians withdrew their forces from Gallipoli, yet the British remained behind. Winston privately begged Lloyd George to open a dialogue with Kamel, but the Prime Minister refused. Instead, British warships were moved into the opening of the Dardanelles. It was a painful déjà vu for Winston. Each side waited for the other to make a move, and then, on September 15, 1922, Kamel was given an ultimatum to keep his troops from the now-neutral Gallipoli and the southern end of the peninsula. Kamel refused the warning, but did not press on with his attack, so a stalemate ensued. As the British did not advance, the crafty Kamel, who sensed weakness, cautiously moved his men forward, but the British troops only stared back, being supported as they were by massive naval guns to their rear. Having his bluff called, in October of 1922, Kamel semi-blinked and ordered his men to withdraw, but won anyway. While the neutral areas were respected and the Greeks allowed to go home in safety, the following Treaty of Lausanne gave the Straits, Eastern Thrace, and Constantinople renamed Istanbul in 1930, to Turkey. However, soon after hearing of the sack of Smyrna, Churchill almost wished Kamel's men had attacked the smaller British force. It may have led to another massacre, but Winston believed it would have stirred his countrymen to fight. Such are, thankfully, the unrealized dreams of a warrior. As colonial secretary, Winston also got his shot at resolving Britain's relationship, or the lack thereof, with Ireland. Before the Great War, the people who supported John Redmond's Irish nationalism experienced disappointment after disappointment. And so, during the war, when England's back was turned, the people there turned to the Sinn Féin, and they knew what they wanted. That is, a complete break to be a separate and equal nation, like the United States. In the elections of 1918, the candidates of Sinn Féin swept the races throughout Southern Ireland, or Erie, as it is called. That is, except in Ulster, of course. That was still under the control of Britain. But Sinn Féin was just getting started. The victorious candidates did not, as expected, head to London to take their seats. Instead, they all headed to Dublin, formed an Irish assembly, called the Doyle, and elected Amon de Valera, a leader of Irish independence, president. Then they all resigned their posts. London reacted as only they knew how. De Valera was put back in prison, but later escaped and smuggled to New York by Michael Collins, one of the leaders of the Irish Republican Army. And that army then went to work against the British on the home island and within Ulster. Winston could have reacted in many ways to the outbreak of violence and murder, and even Clementine reproached him. Quote, Put yourself in the place of the Irish. If you were ever leader, you would not be cowed by severity, and certainly not by reprisals, which fall like rain from heaven, upon the just and upon the unjust. It always makes me unhappy and disappointed when I see you inclined to take for granted that rough, iron-fisted, Hunnish way will prevail. Unquote. 
But that impulse was Winston's gut reaction. So he went with it. On May 11, 1920, Lloyd George's cabinet approved a special emergency gendarmerie that would enlist 8,000 men, mostly former soldiers, with another 1,000 officers. In time, they would simply be called the Tans and would be much hated throughout Erie. Winston thought of them at first as oversized policemen, but they were taught and trained and allowed to fight fire with fire. Their battle was with Sinn Féin, but really, it fell on the people of Southern Ireland. The Tan's worst moment, or their best, depending on one's point of view, was on December 11, 1920, when the city of Cork was set aflame. Each side blamed each other, but the point was, the tactics of the Tans weren't working. The situation was not getting better, and Winston saw this. Just days before Cork went up in flames, on November 2nd, 1920, Churchill told the cabinet, quote, I do not consider that the present government attitude on reprisals can be maintained much longer. It is not fair on the troops. It is not fair on the officers who command them, unquote. Then, with Winston's strong backing, Lloyd George offered a truce, which was accepted. Both sides were tired. This agreement gave Winston, now the peacemaker, a chance to construct a new bill, the Government of Ireland Act, which, with his support, became law on December 23, 1920. Ireland was now divided. Twenty-six counties went to Erie and six went to Ulster. Each side would elect their own legislature. It certainly was an improvement, as Erie now had more power than they did from an earlier bill from 1914 but it was not enough. In May 1921, 128 elections were held throughout Erie, and 124 of those seats went to Sinn Féin candidates. They made Dave Valera president again and voted themselves out of office. This left Lloyd George and Dave Valera bickering over the details of a proposed conference, which allowed the talks to break down even before they met, and the violence was started anew. Still, Something had to be tried. De Valera made it clear he would not go to London. But, as a compromise, he would send his two top lieutenants, Michael Collins, only known as a gunman at the time, and Arthur Griffith, founder of the Sinn Féin. Churchill set the tone by declaring, before the two representatives arrived, that progress had to be made. Otherwise, the fighting thus far would be only bush-ranging compared to what was coming. He told the newspapers, quote, squander this conference and peace is bankrupt, unquote. That was the stick. His carrot was a possible promotion of Ireland's status, namely placing it almost on par with Canada, Australia, and the like by giving it partial dominion status. On October 11th, 1921, Collins and Griffith were welcomed at 10 Downing Street. The talks began Ensuing highs and lows crossed the table, separating the two groups of men. But each side did give a little, and got a little, of what they wanted. Britain won the right to maintain two naval bases in Erie, as Southern Ireland could have no navy. The representatives of Erie would take an oath to the king, and Erie would be known as the Irish Free State. As for the two Irishmen, they argued for and won the right for the Irish Free State to maintain an army and have armed vessels 
to protect their fishermen. And during the first week of December, the agreement was signed. But when he was finished signing, Michael Collins whispered, quote, I may have signed my actual death warrant, unquote. And this gave Churchill pause. He and Collins had spent a lot of time together during the talks and instantly bonded. They were cut from the same cloth, brave, irrepressible, and bombastic. They had shared meals, compared bounties on their heads, laughed together, cried together, and ended one evening at Churchill's house, singing together, while deep in their cups. As to make Collins and Griffith's return to Erie and their news of signing the bill more palatable back home, Winston had talked Lloyd George into staying the execution of several Sinn Féin captives currently being held, which, of course, did absolutely no good in swaying de Valera. He condemned the agreement, as did the British Tories. But Winston's blood was up. This bickering that led to bloodshed had to stop. And so he convinced the House of this with his most potent weapon. His words, quote, Are we not getting a little tired of all this? These absolutely sincere, consistent, unswerving gentlemen, faithful in all circumstances to their implacable quarrels, seek to mount their respective national war horses, in person or by proxy, and to drive at full tilt at one another, shattering and splintering down the lists, to the indescribable misery of the common people, and to the utter confusion of your imperial affairs. If we can free ourselves from it, if we can, to some extent, reconcile the spirit of the Irish nation to the British Empire, in the same way that Scotland and Wales have been reconciled, then, indeed, we shall have secured advantages which may well repay the trouble and the uncertainties of the present time. Unquote. The House backed Winston concerning Ireland, but de Valera, still seething, stood against the bill and Winston's words. But Collins and Griffith worked hard, and the Doyle also passed the bill, narrowly, by a vote of 64 to 57, on January 9, 1922. De Valera still tried again, failed, went underground, and Griffith took his place as the leader, while Collins became the chairman of the provisional government until another general election could be held. De Valera stayed hidden, but violence exploded across Erie and Ulster. Still, Winston and Lloyd George gave their support to Collins and Griffith. Then, Winston found a new adversary, as Sir Henry Wilson stepped down as Chief of the General Staff and took up the role as Northern Ireland's Chief Defensive Advisor and the spokesman for Ulster's MPs, which put him at odds with Winston in the House. The two men went at each other ferociously, verbally speaking, making points, drawing blood, with Winston not always winning. But he had held his own and kept his faith in Collins. That was vital for the bill and for Collins across the Irish Sea to have any chance of success. While Churchill spoke passionately, Collins was fighting passionately, and Winston recognized this for what it was. Collins was the only hope for this agreement to work, and Winston gave him his all, which was appreciated by Michael Collins, but he too recognized that if they failed, then a real general war was possible between Great Britain and Ireland, which, of course, didn't phase de Valera at all, 
who kept up the violence. Houses burned. Unsupportive families were slaughtered. Terror reigned. But De Valera paid a price for his extremism. When Erie went to the polls on June 16, 1922, the war-weary people elected 93 candidates who supported Churchill's bill. Candidates of the Irish Republican Army only won 35 seats. However, this turned out only to be a very thin silver lining within a much larger dark cloud. Only six days after the Irish had gone to the polls, Sir Henry Wilson was shot down outside his doorstep. The Irish gunmen had emptied their pistols into his chest. Soon after, agents of Scotland Yard had found a list of British politicians who were to suffer the same fate, and Winston's name was at the top. For months afterward, he slept in his armchair that had been reinforced with steel, a pistol in his lap. The IRA Irregulars, as de Valera's men were called, raised the ante by taking the buildings of the four courts in Dublin. But at least now, the British had a tangible target to focus on, or rather, British artillery, which was given to Michael Collins for his men to fight back. As those Irishmen willing to fight for the free state moved in, the occupiers, seeing that they were going to lose, set fire to the buildings and then surrendered. But if they expected leniency, they didn't consider the numerous lines they had crossed. A number of them were executed by a free state firing squad. But this sign of Sinn Féin determination was only the latest blow of a much larger fight. On August 22, 1922, at 7.30 p.m., Michael Collins and members of his convoy were ambushed and slain by de Valera's gunmen. In the last minutes of his life, Collins said, quote, Tell Winston we could have never done it without him. Unquote. The body was wrapped in the green flag of Ireland, and that song, so intertwined with the Emerald Island, was sang by the mourners. Oh, darling boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen and down the mountainside. The summer's gone and all the roses calling. It's you, it's you must go and I must bide. But come ye back when summer's in the meadow, or when the valley's hushed and white with snow. It's I'll be here in sunshine and in shadow. Oh, darling boy, I love you, love you so. Winston mourned the loss as well, while other Irish Free State men moved into leadership positions and were themselves slain. But in October of that year, the Doyle passed the Constitution written by Collins, Griffith, and Churchill. Still, de Valera would rise again and become president ten years later. The violence continued. But now it was time for Winston to look after his own political laurels. As the years passed after the Great War, many voters considered that Lloyd George had won the war, but lost the peace. And Winston was always 
seen by his side? Was it the cabinet's fault that the League of Nations did not contain representatives from the United States, Germany, and Russia? Perhaps not, but that is how it was viewed from the streets throughout London and Dundee. As for Winston, he had been so busy with the Middle East, Turkey, and Ireland that he had had no time to focus on his constituents or notice the political shift as the Labour Party grew in strength. What's more, the Tory MPs were extremely unhappy with LG's lack of everything, his leadership on domestic and international events. So they turned on him and voiced their desire to be led by Bonar Law. That shattered the coalition government, and Lloyd George decided to step down in mid-1922. Bonar Law then created his own government with a general election to be held in mid-November. This vote could not have come at a worse time for Winston, who was incapacitated by an emergency appendectomy. Still, he, just like everyone else, would have to fight for their seat, but was forced to fight lying down, which meant he was unable to personally convince the good people of Dundee that, although he had spent the majority of his time dealing with the major issues of the empire, mostly outside of his district, he did have the voters' interests at heart. He had planned on more social legislation, but simply did not have the time to focus on it, which meant little to his district, who were dealing with high unemployment and other day-to-day struggles. Winston wisely chose not to harp on the Tories. Instead, he railed against the socialists, which must have felt good, but at the time was bad politics. The Tories, thankful for being spared his vocal attacks, decided not to run one of their own against him. Yet this gesture mattered little, as Winston was still laid up in Dorset Square. So, with nowhere else to turn, Winston asked Clementine to stump for him, and, although pregnant with their last child, she agreed, only to find hatred and contempt waiting for her, when she was not being spat upon, literally. Winston campaigned from his bed with letters against his two rivals, Georges Morel de Ville, who was backed by Labour, and French to boot, and William Gallagher, a communist, who had organized strikes in defense industries when Winston was Minister of Munitions. This fact gave Winston much grist for his meal, but the people wanted to hear about their challenges and what was going to be done about them, not what the other candidates had done during the Great War. As they say, all politics are local. In the end, the frustrated people of Dundee elected Morel de Ville and a prohibitionist, while Winston received less than 14% of the vote. Leaving Dundee straight away, Winston explained that he was far from well, and when back in London, wrote that he now found himself, quote, without an office, without a seat, without a party, and without an appendix, unquote. The emotionally and now physically scarred Winston was out of Parliament, which he had been a member of for the last 22 years, 13 of which as a member of the Cabinet.
Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So just to let you know, we're almost done with Churchill. There's a very specific place I want to stop because it makes a very good point. Uh, I think we've got two episodes left, and then we'll get back to the war, uh, North Africa, Greece, the buildup to the uh, invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, so we'll get to the, back to that as soon as we can. I'm going to shoot for like 30-minute epi- episodes um, to come out a lot more frequently. I think that'll make it more um, entertaining for you. You won't have to wait so long, and I can just uh, get those out. And I just think it'll make the story flow a lot better. So bear with me with that. So I just want to thank the people who have made donations and welcome aboard the newest members. Let's see here. As far as donations, uh, Lawrence M. from Ellicott City, Maryland. And then there was a Michael W. from Bedfordshire, UK, who bought a CD. Thank you. And as far as some of my newest members, let's see here. There's Robert D. from Debham, Massachusetts. Joseph K. from Seattle, Washington. Jim F. from Sarasota, Florida. Deborah S. And I'm sorry, Deborah, I'm not sure where you're from. If you email me, I'll be happy to say it next time. Uh, Logan H. from Jacksonville, Florida. Carrie M. Again, Carrie, I'm not sure where you're from. Please email me and I'll be happy to uh, include it next time. And Graham C. from Farnborough, UK, who I think has donated several times. So, Graham, thank you very much. Uh, let's see here. Robert W. Sr. from Browntown, Wisconsin. Michael S. from North Berwick, Maine. And I believe he also made a donation. So, Michael S., thank you very much. I appreciate it. As far as some other donations, Ian S. from Nottinghamshire, UK. Uh, let's see here. There's Brenda M. from Alberta, Canada. Morgan I. from Ottawa, Canada. John M. from Comber, UK. Hope I said that right. Let's see here. Michael R. from St. Albans, Australia. I'd like to thank Darko G. from Buying a Mug, a Churchill Mug. He's from Bonner, Australia. And some of my um, other members. Let's see here. Nicholas I. from West Richmond, Australia. James B. from Sacramento, California. Uh, Tom H. from Adestat, Norway. And I'm sorry, Tom, if I got that wrong. Then there was one more. It just said Lego Mini. So thank you, Lego Mini, for becoming a member. Hope you enjoy the uh, 29 episodes I've put out so far. So um, I will see you all as soon as I can with episode 103. Like I said, we'll wrap up Churchill and get back to the war. Got all my books together, ready to go. Um, So we'll do it as soon as we can. Take care, everyone.